Good morning. Allison, Allison in Wonderland has a conversation in which she says, Could you tell me, please, sir, which way I ought to go? And the cat says, Well, that depends a great deal on where you're trying to be. And she said, It doesn't really matter much where I go. And so the cat said in reply, Then it doesn't really matter which way you travel. She added as an afterthought, so long as I get somewhere. And the cat concluded by saying, oh, you're sure to get somewhere if you just walk long enough. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, our talk of vision and plans and dreams can sound like the chaotic chatter of fairy tale characters. We talk about and we think about and we dream about what God would have us to do. And that's what we've been doing this month. We've been talking about the vision that the elders have laid out for us, the dreams, the, the goals, the ambitions that we have. And it, it sparks our, our hearts and our interest in wanting to serve however we can. But if we're not careful, the idea that I've heard and I'm sure you have heard is that those who fail to plan, plan to fail. And with the collective responsibility that we have before God, we can't do that. And so as we have looked about us this month and all that's involved in the re-engagement and in the re-view uh, uh, of all that has happened in the past as we rem- remembered that, we're going to look one more time this week at this idea, this uh, plan about what's to come. You know, the most winningest coach in NFL history, at least to this point, Bill Belichick is not far behind him, is Don Shula. 347 wins all time. And he laid out his formula for success. And he says, if you are seeking goals and you want to achieve those goals, you've got to do whatever is necessary day in and day out in order to accomplish those goals. When we think about the God above us that we are worshiping right now and whose will it is that we are seeking to fulfill, we realize that we serve an unlimited God. And so our dreams can be unlimited. We realize that we have a God that is so big that our dreams ought to be big. Because really, if we think about it, the limit to our dreams and goals is the ability and the will of God. And we understand fully that everything that we say, what we lay out and what we want to do is fully subject to what God desires. It is His Word that's guiding us. It is His will that we are submitting to. It is His way that we want to walk in. It is His work that we're trying to accomplish. But I believe it's a fair statement to say that too often the people of God have been guilty of having such unambitious dreams, of thinking too small when it comes to the will of God on this earth. I think if we look in the past, we can see that this was the case for God's people in biblical times, and it can be the case for us today. As we think about looking ahead, the dreams that have been laid out before us, as we continue to seek the vision that the elders have laid out for us, that we are a growing family that loves one another, that's trying to reach out into our community to help them to serve with us and to finally go to heaven, what gets in the way of our goals and dreams? What stifles our vision? I want to look at a few things and then the lesson is yours. First of all, I submit to you that a lack of thought stifles our vision. 
You know, I think that we are thinking all the time. I don't know what the exact number is, but there are literally tens of thousands of thoughts that go through our head in a particular year, certainly hundreds of them in a given day, and we're thinking all the time. I realize as I stand before a group this size that there are some who are thinking about what it is that I'm saying and there are others of you who are thinking about what you came in with or perhaps something that has come across your mind since you've been in the building. We're always, we're thinking creatures. We think about our future. We think about our hopes. We think about our uh, dreams about retirement. We think about our prospects for the future. But far too often, our thoughts about what we can do for God don't enter into our mind. Before we can dream it, we have got to think it. You know, I look into times in the past where it seems to be that God's people were not thinking about God's plans. Do you remember in that what we call often the post-exilic period? Where the people of God who had been once mighty and strong and large, they had the the kings David and Solomon in their background, and yet they had fallen because of sin, and God had punished them in the Babylonian captivity. Seventy years they're away from their home, but now finally they can go back to the land, to the inheritance that had been laid out back in the days of Moses, in the days of Joshua. And now as they are there, and they face the work that God has given to them, They have allowed a people nearby, the Samaritans, their community, their culture, to kind of put the brakes on the work that they had started doing. And so for now over a decade it has laid dormant. And they have gone about their own lives. They were thinking about the earthly plans that they had. If you will, they were thinking about their job. They were thinking about their family. They were thinking about how they could make their life better. So the Bible says that in... The first year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and unto Joshua the uh, son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the house of God should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto the people, saying, Is it not time, O you who dwell in your paneled houses, and this house lies waste? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you're not filled. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but none is warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Haggai 1, 1 through 7. What God was saying to the prophet is, I want you to think about my house, and I want you to think about your ways. God is always saying that to us. I want you to think about it. We're not going to dream big dreams for God. We're not going to see how we fit into the picture to help the church to grow and to be strong and to be great if we don't first think about it. The man after God's own heart was a man who thought about God's will and God's way. Yes, he made some big mistakes in his life, but he is the one who said that I thought on my ways and I turned my feet under your testimonies. I delayed not, but made haste to keep your commandments. Psalm 119, verse 59 and 60. And so as we think about the vision, the goal, the dream that's before us, we need to realize that a lack of thought stifles our vision. But furthermore, in the second place, we also see that a lack of faith stifles our vision. You know, what can happen to us very easily is that we fail to see the part that God plays in our plans. We're going to talk about the part that we play before this lesson is over, but the place to begin is upon the foundation of everything that we would build. And that's what God can do. 
Is it fair and accurate to say that sometimes the budgets that we have set forward are based on what we have shown that we can give? Have our plans sometimes been what we believe that we can do without needing God's help? When we look at the great God that we serve, we see that God who is boundless in His abilities. And God wants us to have the faith to see what God can do through us. That we go as far as we can go and then we reach out beyond that and say, God, what is it that you can do? And we set our plans based on that. I read about a man by the name of Ray Blankenship who was eating breakfast one morning. And as he looked out his rear window, he saw a little girl being rushed along the drainage ditch alongside of his house. It was rain flooded. And there she went rushing along. And without even thinking, Ray Blankenship ran out of his house. And he ran and he tried to get ahead of that little girl. And when he did, he dove into the water. He knew what was ahead. He realized that not far beyond his house, there was a culvert that went down under the main road. And it went into the city's main culvert. And he knew that the little girl would drown if he didn't jump in. And so he did. He got ahead of the girl. He grabbed her arm. They went tumbling end over end. And the force of the water was so great, he was afraid he was going to lose her hand and that he himself would be lost. But three feet before that yawning culvert, he reached out and grabbed something, possibly a rock, and he held on. But the water was tearing and pulling. And he thought, if I can just hang on... Until rescuers arrived, but he did better than that. By the time that fire department rescuers arrived, he had pulled himself and the girl to safety. They both had shock, but nothing worse than that. On April 12, 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard's Silver Rescue Award. And people really didn't realize how valiant it really was what he had done, that life-saving award that he earned, because... Only a few people knew that Ray Blankenship couldn't swim. But he jumped in that water. He realized that the objective was so great that he had to forget himself and jump in. You know, so often churches are acting from their fear rather than working from their faith. I believe it was Jack Bannon in Unlimited Potential who said that fear is simply fraudulent evidence altering reality. But faith instead is a fearless attitude inspiring troubled hearts. God in His Word addresses us and He says, I want you to act from your faith. How often does He say that? In Luke 18 and verse 27, He says, The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 23, we see Jesus reaching out and admonishing one whom He is helping and saying that, If you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Or what does Paul say to a church who was struggling with some internal issues? But he says to them, in light of their collective responsibility, he says, My God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19 Michigan State and UCLA were playing in the Rose Bowl. And it was tied 14-14 and there were a few seconds left. And Michigan State's coach sent the place kicker, Dave Kaiser, in to line up and to kick that somewhat long field goal to try to win the game. He did. That's impressive. As he was trotting off the field, his coach had a conversation with Kaiser. He said, that was a great kick. But explain something to me. Why is it that you didn't, uh, you only looked at the referee? And Kaiser said, coach, I left my contacts at home, and so I was looking at the referee to see how he would signal it. I couldn't see the goalposts. 
You know, when we think about what's ahead, we can't see what's ahead of us. We don't know. But God is looking to us to be those who will reach out and grab His almighty hand and realize that by faith He can do the things that we would never even imagine that we could do without Him. As we consider the vision that's laid before us, what we have got to do is have faith in God's ability to help it to be a reality. In the third place, I would suggest to you that a lack of enthusiasm stifles our vision. You know, something stirs us. Something deep inside of us moves us to be passionate and enthusiastic. But what God wants it to be is those spiritual things. The things that center around Christ and what He did for us. And it's His church. It's His mission that He left His apostles and by extension He left to us. You don't do what the apostles did, and that's to go into all the world without a passion and an enthusiasm to fulfill the will of the Lord. I think about what, remember the text that we had a couple of weeks ago was Romans chapter 12, and one of the admonitions that Paul gave to his people was that we're not to be slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, Romans 12 and verse 11. When you think about Apollos, I think sometimes when we look at Acts 18 and verse 25, we focus on the fact that he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. But that's not how the text begins. It tells us about him that he was a man who was mighty in the scriptures. And he was fervent in spirit. And he taught diligently the things of the Lord. That spirit would allow him, after he knew what God wanted him to do, that would cause him to go into every arena and so eloquently speak of God's word. God desires our enthusiasm, our passion for His plan. Maybe this is a bad analogy, but I can say this because I'm as guilty as those that I'm going to point out. I I had chores to do when I was a teenager. And I remember on more than one occasion, both usually it was mom, but also dad on occasion, if she put him on the task, would say, son, take out the garbage. And, you know, I, I didn't think back uh, to, to how really things had unfolded up to that point, that they had taken care of me, that they had met my needs, that they had cleaned up after me in ways that I could not. They had given me everything that I needed. And more than once, I would say to them, I'll do it later. Actually, I said it a couple of times. I'm slow to learn the lesson that Dad applied to, to my mind. And as I thought about that, I did better. But I said it before. He ever said that? When something needed to be done, I'll do it later. How does God feel when He has saved us from so great a death and He has shown us so much love and He says to us, I want you to go out and I want you to, everywhere you go and everybody that you meet, I want you to show them Christ. I want you to be salt and light. And yawningly we say, I'll do it later. God is not looking for unenthusiastic churches. In fact, he shows us one church that was not enthusiastic. Do you remember? He said to them that you're neither cold or hot. I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. But listen, on the other side of that, God can change the world, starting with the community where we are. When we passionately and enthusiastically say, here am I, send me. And so a lack of enthusiasm stifles our vision. But then also a lack of effort stifles our vision. Dreams and and goals and our talk and our plans are so valuable, but they only get us so far. 
all the hoping in the world, it's not going to get it done. God expects us to to get up off of the pew and out of the church building and out into the world where we can influence it. I believe it was John Dretchmer that said that upon the plains of hesitation bleaches the bones of untold millions who on the dawn of victory sat down to rest and their resting died. God wants our effort. And here's the thing that's scary. Whenever we begin to roll up our sleeves and we begin to pursue the objective, Satan doesn't like it. Is it First Chronicles 21 and verse 1 that says that Satan stood up against Israel? Is it in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, where the Apostle Paul is telling us that he has these devices that he would like to use on us, that he has fiery darts that he is aiming at us, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, that he likes to resist us, James chapter 4 and verse 7. When we begin to talk, and maybe it is that we begin to experience that, as we're trying to reach outside of ourselves and to dare to do great things for God, maybe we begin to see and to feel a little bit of that pressure that Satan begins to apply against us. He tries to stifle our vision. He's got some very simple and very familiar stiflers, doesn't he? It costs too much. We don't have enough dedicated workers. We don't have the time. Nobody cares. You know, you try to sift through and understand what this parable is about in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 18 where Jesus and the disciples are walking along and they come upon this fig tree and coming closer to it, that seeing that there's only leaves on that. And so Jesus reaches out and he strikes that tree. He says, because it wasn't bearing fruit, may you not bear fruit anymore. And immediately it withered and the disciples were amazed. And they said, how was it that this tree withered so quickly? And Jesus says that if you have faith, you'll be able to do more than make this tree wither, but you'll say to this mountain, apparently as they looked out on that range, fall into the ocean and it will be done. Whatever you ask, believing in prayer, you shall receive. So what do we do when it seems like the mountains are moving? We need to pray to God, God, give me the strength to continue to climb. But as we look at the plans that are out before us, vision... The vision that's been laid out for us requires our collective effort to get it done. Vision is a mental picture of a desired future. Vision is a picture of what you can see that isn't, hasn't appeared yet, but of what can be. You know, what we've got to do is we've got to avoid tunnel vision. Tunnel vision is, the, uh, is, the, way, is the, 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 look, the view that says there's only one way to do things, my way. And this is the way that we have always done things. But then there's also mirror vision. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest Christian of them all? You may be doing more than Brother A, but you're also doing less than Sister C. But instead, we need to turn that mirror into a window. A window that looks out on lost souls in need all around us. You know, we have these cards up here. One of the things as we went through strategic planning is we asked ourselves, as people come by 1002 Lehman Avenue, as they drive past in either direction and they look in this building, what do they know about us? You know, we're trying to preach and to live New Testament Christianity, but what does our community know about us? There is a world full of over 100,000 people in this county 
who have never dying souls. And that number is growing all the time. The fastest, well, up until this last survey, we're now number two. Uh, Georgetown and Lexington, Kentucky overtook us. But for several years running, it's been the fastest growing city in Kentucky. And we're still growing. I think it's like 17% since the last census, which was a, 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 in between time, 2018. As we think about those 100,000 souls that we might come in contact with, what do they know about us? On July 10th, we're going to have this, this uh, restoring a stable foundation, overcoming anxiety and depression with Dr. Jerry Martin. It's a prime opportunity. I, I encourage you to come right in front of the Lodens here. There's a, uh, there's a tub with some cards in it. And, and pick up some of these and, and leave them with friends. Leave them in the places where you go. There's a QR code where you can register. Ask somebody to come with you. Spend that day helping them to see their need of God's help. We need to turn the mirror into a window that allows us to look with clarity through God's Word at hell and avoid that and to look toward heaven and drive and pursue to go there. What we need is heavenly vision. We need to look at our work through God's eyes. A bishop in the Anglican Church was visiting a Midwestern religious college. He stayed in the home of the college president who was also a professor of physics and chemistry. And as they were visiting together after dinner one evening, the bishop said that he knew that the millennium must be about to come because all important discoveries in nature had been made and every important invention had been discovered. The young college president politely disagreed and he thought that there were still great discoveries to be made. This enraged the bishop and he demanded that he give him at least one example And the young president said, well, I believe that man will be able to fly within the next 50 years. This enraged the bishop. And he said, nonsense, only angels and birds were intended to fly. Milton would soon leave home, return to Ohio, and would hug his two little boys, Wilbur and Orville. You know, those three were under the same sky, but they had different horizons. Do you remember the father of the demon-possessed son? Can you imagine how difficult his circumstances must have been? What he faced? How It seemed that no one could help them until he found Jesus. He and Jesus are engaged in a discussion about faith. And Jesus said all things, again, gave that concept of all things being possible to those that believe. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. With tears of resolve and confession of faith and a recognition of our own inadequacy without Him. That opens the door. That paves the road for us to do the things, scary as they may be, that we can only dream about at present. Don't you dream for a day when New Testament Christianity permeates and so fills this area that it draws certainly the attention of Satan, but also of the lost all around us. How does that begin? It begins by us having a vision. Our elders stepped outside of their own comfort zone, and they're standing out in front of us as good shepherds, and they're saying, follow me as we follow the great shepherd, and let's dare to do great things. 
You know, we're, we're now at the place where we're, it's time for us to enact these plans that we've been talking about, step by step. Let's pray about that. Don't just pray about the church, but recognizing yourself as a member of it. Ask yourself, ask our elders, ask our deacons, those in our vision groups, what do you need me to do to help you make it a reality? It may be that step one is into the waters of baptism to become a child of God. Maybe you've been thinking about that, knowing that you need to do it, but you haven't done it yet. I'm not sure what you're waiting on, but you'll never have a better Savior. You'll never have a better opportunity. You'll never have more time than right now. Why not act on your conviction and faith that Jesus is the Son of God, changing your heart and mind that leads to a change of actions, which the Bible calls repentance, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, allowing yourself to be lowered in baptism to rise to walk in newness of life. We stand prepared, ready to help you with that. If you're a child of God and you need to just rededicate your life to Christ, to put Him first again, or if there's some need or some prayer request that you have that we can pray with you to the Father's throne on your behalf, we would urge you, in response to this invitation, to come right now as we stand and sing.